0: Welcome to BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast. We're joined by judges and legal professionals to discuss emerging trends, regulatory updates, and the latest headlines. We'll provide tips to help your law firms and legal departments make the most out of legal tech.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Jared Crafton, BDO's Forensic Technology Practice Leader.
0: And i'm daniel gold bdo's managing director of the enterprise e-discovery managed services practice
1: let's get started with this episode's exciting topic
0: all right welcome to another edition of bdo's legal tech talk podcast we are joined in the virtual podcast recording studio with two incredible litigators here madeline lane and Scott Carbo. They come to us from the law firm of Warner Norcross and Judd. And Warner Norcross and Judd is a corporate law firm, over 200 attorneys serving clients in eight different offices across Michigan. They're one of the largest law firms in Michigan, and they work in virtually all areas of business law. Madeline, Scott, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you here.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. We're we're thrilled to get to chat with you and tell you a little bit more about what we do in the e-discovery space.
0: Well, we're excited about it as well. Now, listen, you know, I can read off your <laughs> bios very well. You know, I can read it off just as good as Jared can, maybe a little bit better, but it's good to hear in your own words. Uh, now, Scott, tell us a little bit about yourselves, a little bit about your practice to get started
3: certainly madeline and i co-chair our e-discovery subgroup here at the firm and have worked over the last 10-15 years on a large number of large document review projects both in the civil and criminal context and so we like to say if there's been a big document review project in this state in the last 10 years we've probably touched it or had something to do with it in some way shape or form i also i think one of the things that's unique about me for purposes of this conversation is I didn't go straight from kindergarten through law school, as we like to say in the field, K to law school. I took a couple of years in between after I graduated and worked in IT. And so that helps me talk with a lot of my clients and their IT professionals on where their documents are and speak a little bit more in a language that, you know, we can kind of understand and communicate effectively. It's so that's been a help to me and is why I ended up in e-discovery.
2: Well, I am one of those K-to-law school graduates, but I have been thankfully working with Scott for the last 15 years here at Warner, and as he mentioned, I'm sort of the criminal side of this duo, and I primarily work in white-collar criminal defense, so spend a lot of my time not just in the courtroom, but then also in the discovery side, responding to grand jury subpoenas, the IDs, or other government investigations, so I have the luck of having the information about what is really needed in trial that helps inform kind of early case management. And I can better let my clients know what it is that truly is going at the end of the day to be valuable in discovery requests.
0: You know, one of the interesting reasons why Jared and I wanted to have both of you on the show here is that you come at this from not only your veterans in e-discovery, right, document review, but, You come out of two different angles that we wanted to explore more on the program, and that is both the civil and as well as the criminal. And that's really interesting to us. Obviously, there's a lot of civil litigators that are out there, but the criminal side is very interesting. And, you know, when we were talking before, you know, the recording here today, we were talking about where there are similarities, where there's contrasts. Can you chat a little bit about what is it like on the criminal side versus the civil side for e-discovery?
2: I agree with you. I do think that there are some similarities, but primarily what we see are differences. I think in large part, the criminal bar is about five to 10 years behind the civil bar in terms of the use of technology-assisted review, the use of early case assessment, and sort of really embracing the different technological tools that we have to call documents at the front end to really get at what both sides at the end of the day are going to consider to be the key documents. And part of that, I think, is the fact that many government attorneys and certainly many defense counsel, especially those working in public defense, so your federal public defender's office, state defender's offices, don't have access to the type of vendor support or databases that you know, the four of us kind of work in every day. And so when you don't get a chance to work with that technology a lot, you don't necessarily trust it because you don't know how it works. You don't know how it's helping you. And I think additionally, especially in sort of what I refer to as like the street crime arena, you're having proliferation of the types of data that is incredibly useful for prosecutions that is changing on a constant basis. So when we all started this we were thinking about bankers boxes of documents my criminal cases now involve gps data from somebody's apple watch information that was recorded on an alexa information that maybe is in your gps and your computer in your car and so you know we're still trying to get a grasp on how best to not just preserve that information identify it and collect it and so While the civil side of things is a little bit ahead of us, I have seen some really good strides in the criminal space, especially when it comes to kind of major investigations in recent years where they're beginning to embrace the use of technology-assisted review and some of these technological tools, because while the information itself is important the prosecutors or the government investigators also don't want to be the ones that are getting 16 million documents dumped on them because they didn't want you to use technology assisted review or search terms or they wanted you to collect from 100 custodians rather than 10 because they they didn't understand the technology or they they wanted to make sure they had everything. And because they are having trouble and difficulty shifting through that data, I think it is in a lot of cases, really helped for them to embrace some of these tools so that we can all reduce the amount that we have to collect, review, and then produce.
3: Yeah, and I think what Madeline said is all very true. And I like to focus as much as I can on similarities there because I think to her point, we do need to bring more technology-assisted review and good e-discovery principles to the criminal arena because it's the same set of problems that we have in the civil context. You're grabbing data, you're providing the data, you're providing evidence for the case. Ultimately, that has to be reviewed by the other side. And if the other side, whether it's a criminal defense firm or a civil firm, has limited resources, the way you gather the data, the way you produce it, it all matters. And so, You know, Again, this will be a constant theme for what we talk about. It's really about building trust, right? And if you can build trust with the government agency that's investigating you, you may have an opportunity to sell them on technology-assisted review or on using technology to reduce their burden in reviewing the data that you produce to them. And that's where I think this is heading. And I think as people get more comfortable with technology, maybe ChatGPT helps with that, but as the population just gets a little bit more comfortable with the technology, I think a lot of those hesitations about using them in the criminal arena will fall by the wayside. I think this is
1: absolutely fascinating. You know, On one hand, you have on the civil side, it sounds like a lot broader adoption of some of the technology to cut down this data. But on the criminal side, it sounds like it's actually further ahead in terms of getting evidence off of internet connected devices, I think every week now I read about, you know, some murder case that was solved, you know, on a, by a smart water meter or some other device that was laying around the house. So you almost have this convergence of, you know, all this data being collected, but not a way to really analyze it efficiently. It's certainly going to come to a head. Uh, but, Scott, you just mentioned trust, which I think is one of the major topics that we wanted to talk to you about today. Trust and collaboration, you know, trust with our yeah. clients, trust with the courts, trust with our opponents or adversaries on the other side. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the steps that lawyers can take particularly in the e-discovery space, you know, to build that trust?
3: Yeah, have conversations. I boil it down to that very simple point. Number 1, have conversations with your client. It's very difficult to build trust with the bench or your opponent, uh, your opposing counsel in a case, if you haven't talked to your client, you don't know what you're talking about. So, if you make representations about how much this is going to cost, or you know how much data they're requesting in their production request, without having had a full conversation with your client, you're doing a disservice to building that trust with opposing counsel. So, number one, at the outset of any representation, talk to your client. What are your goals? You know, from a spend standpoint, from a litigation success standpoint. From a protection of your information standpoint i mean jared you just talked about the proliferation of data sources in criminal cases and that's definitely true and there some in some ways with alexa and you know ring cameras they're more interesting but it's also happening on the civil side you know we think about ipads and other devices cell phones that are being provided by businesses different apps on the cell phones different chat functions there's a lot of data. So you've got to get your arms around the data with your client and understand what they're comfortable producing in litigation and what would be a, an uncomfortable production for them. Maybe they've got some trade secrets that they don't want to go out the door. So having that conversation with your client first so that you've got your goals aligned and then having a conversation very early on with opposing counsel. If I'm the defendant in a complaint, uh, I'm going to call the plaintiff probably within the first couple of weeks of getting the complaint and saying, we've looked at this, We've identified your claims here. Here's what we think are the five most relevant custodians, and here are the data sources. We're gonna put this in the early joint status report we have to file wherever, depending on the jurisdiction. We'll put this in our filing, but we wanted you to know up front: this is where we think the most relevant data is. And the reason for doing that is to save everybody, cost, time, and expense, right? I mean, if you can cut down on the data sources and build that trust, you're going to have an easier time in discovery than you will if you all retreat to your corners fight about producing every last shred of paper or email or piece of evidence and wait for the judge to decide because for as much respect as i have for the bench in most instances the parties are much better equipped to arrive at a resolution to an issue than the bench is why because you know your client's interest and in the and the facts of that case a lot better than the judge does you know the technology involved so again you know, I think about this as collaboration, collaboration with the bench and collaboration with opposing counsel because 90% of these cases are going to settle. So at some point you're going to have to get in a room and you're gonna have to get along with opposing counsel and you're gonna have to figure it out. So why should e-discovery be any different?
2: And to that point, I think it's important to take a step back as well and recognize that sometimes the best defense for your client is to collaborate. I mean, we're all here, And we're all doing this work in this space because litigation is expensive, and the largest contributor to that incredible expense is the discovery phase. And as these types of data sources continue to proliferate, and as the amount of data I can put on my iPhone continues to grow by each year, it's only going to get more expensive. And so I think that there needs to be kind of a reckoning within the bar itself that you need to figure out how to best defend your client with spending the least amount of money. I'm not in any way suggesting you shouldn't vigorously defend your client. That is absolutely what we're all doing. But at the same time, does that require you to go back and force the other side to look through two decades worth of backup tapes? Very rarely is that going to be the case, but a lot of times because we're looking at the other side as our adversaries or opposing counsel rather than colleagues who are working just like us to try to get to a spot where we can review the case and make sure justice is done. If we're doing that, then we're not gonna trust the other side and we're gonna force them to overturn every single piece of paper from all of history rather than just sitting down in a room, as Scott suggests, and saying to each other, what makes the most sense? What does the data say after we've put it through whatever early case assessment program or model that we have? Let's look at those first, and then we'll talk about what we're going to do next or whether we have the information that's necessary to decide what to do next in this case. And so I think by recognizing that you don't always have to be in an adversarial position, your best offense is to collaborate with the other side. I think that's step number one in getting these costs reduced.
0: There is a lot of goodness to unpack here. Scott Maryland, I mean, there is so much. So let me see if if I can, Jeff, you're going to have to help me out here, unpack a lot of this here, right? So the first thing is to go back to Scott. So something you said was interesting, right? So when you were talking about your background, when mm-hmm. we first started, you said, you know, I didn't go from K to law school. I went K to IT, right? Then law yep. school. So you've got this technology background, right? You, myself, and Jared, you know, we're, you know we can classify ourselves. mental, I'm not excluding you by any means. But, you know, you can classify <laughs> yourself as like, you know, a technologist, right? Yeah. You know, I spend some time in the trenches in IT as well. But there's a lot of lawyers who just don't care for it right? Mm -hmm. They don't understand it. They don't trust it. They don't want it. Right. I've made the joke before on this podcast before about the federal court judge out of Missouri, who said that he was having a a rule 16 conference. And he asked the lawyers if they had any, uh, any ESI. And and one lawyer said no. And the judge says, well, don't you have email? And he says, yeah, but that's not ESI. Right. That's, (laughs) it sounds like a lawyer joke, right? But the reality is, is though, is that Scott, that is a lot of the Unfortunately, still today, it's 2023, and that's still a lot of the mentality. It's easy for you, some might say, right, who have a technology background to just pick up the phone and just say, hey, these are the five things I've read in the complaint. These are where the data is. Nobody understands where the data is. And Madeline, you made a great point about the data could be everywhere, right? You know, and and now it's the prompts we're putting in ChatGBT, right? You know, is that discoverable too? How do other lawyers get to the point to have an easy conversation with opposing counsel about the technology because it's not an easy conversation for so many.
3: Yeah, I think, like I said earlier, you start with the client. And so you've got to understand your client's data, even if you're not, you know, super tech forward, tech savvy, whatever, uh, you know, phrase you want to use, you have to talk to your client and just go through maybe having, you know, a routine custodian questionnaire form coming up with something like the, as simple as that, where, and you can pull some of these off of the internet, where you just go to your client and you say, okay, talk to me about how you guys do work generally with technology. Do you use email? Wh- what kind of email do you, do you use? Are you on Office 365? What are you using just as a catalog so that you can start to understand and get your arms around it? Because if you don't, you run a lot of risks of A, not collecting, evidence or data that the other side wants, but B and more importantly, you may be overlooking the things you need to prove your case or defense. So the things that are going to help you because there's both a a proactive and a reactive part of discovery. The proactive part is what you're asking for and what you're gathering to prove your case, right? And the reactive is just responding to other people's requests. And too many of my colleagues fall only in the reactive category, and they don't think about how to be proactive, especially with their client's own data. And so starting with that conversation and being curious intellectually about how your clients work, where their data is, asking those questions and following up so that you can become a subject matter expert on that evidence, you have to start there. And you have to do it early. I mean, a lot of people talk about early case assessment. I refer to it more as early case strategy. And the strategy, step one, is to Go to your client and figure out where their data is, how they store it, what problems you may be running into so that you can explain that to the judge and to opposing counsel. Because if it's not going to be you, who is it going to be? Nobody.
2: I think, and
1: Scott, I'll, I also heard in yeah. your earlier answer um, a willingness to show your cards, you know, to show mm-hmm. your hand and, and to be open to that collaboration with the other side and, and maybe not all your cards. Right. But to at yeah. least, you know, show them what you have and, and to work with them. And that just seems to be missing, I think, in a lot of the cases that I work in. And so it seems to be a, a successful approach for you. Is that?
3: Correct? Yeah. Yeah. Because, Jared, I mean, at any point in discovery, you're a little bit reactive, as I said earlier, and a little bit beholden to what the other side thinks of what you've done so far. And so, you know, I had a case where we did 27 depositions and exchanged, you know, probably half a million documents, maybe more. And when the case was over, I I can recall sitting down with the other lawyer and saying, man, we didn't need 27 depositions, did we? And he said, no, probably not. So, you know, again, we're kind of after the fact being, so why aren't we able to do that on the front end? And again, I think it's because we're taking too long to figure that first piece out of where the client information is and what their sensitivities are. To your point, obviously, if there's some trade secrets and there's some data sources that your client is uncomfortable with and they don't want part of the discovery for a variety of reasons, you need to know that on the front end. But I find it more helpful to kind of protect the client's interest, knowing that early and knowing where everything else is. Because most of the time, you know, it goes back to the old request of give me all documents that say X, Y, or Z. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy request and as time goes on, it gets even more and more crazy because of how many different places that information sits on the client side of the wall. You don't need to give every last example of the same amount of data, you just need to find the one, right? So if there's a data source that is has more ch- trade secrets or more sensitivities and you find out about it early, in my view, the most effective way of protecting that data isn't to hide it, it's to say it's available in other sources, via other sources. I'm the expert. I'm gonna tell you where that data is and how to get it. And I'm gonna volunteer that information to you because I'm trying to protect another strategic goal of my client. And and it may, may well be that the client has no document sensitivities. They just want this done for as little as they can pay to get it done. Most of my clients fall into that category in some way, shape or form. And that's the most effective way of doing that too because like I said, you know, to settle a case or to be done with discovery to not get another motion to compel, you have to satiate in some ways the other side. And the only way to do that is to build trust and to offer and to offer data sources and information to them. If you're just trying to hide everything, you're not going to get anywhere and you're going to end up in motion practice and spending more money than you intended.
0: Well, and and typically that is what happens. So let, let me take another step backwards on something else you guys had said. This is getting to a really, really good place and exactly where we want to go in the, in this podcast, right? So Madeline, let's start with you. We're talking about word choices that we use as lawyers. It's extremely important. We, as lawyers choose our words so carefully, right? Yet the words that we use have a direct correlation on how much money we're spending in litigation, i.e., we call our opposing counsel, our adversaries, right? And then we talk about uh, a demand for motions, right? you know, demand for discovery, right? There's different words we can use. And when we talk about the word cooperation, it's like, oh my gosh, no, right? My client is not paying me, right? To cooperate and to be transparent, it's considered weak. Uh, may he rest in peace, but Judge Waxy was often fond of, he wrote a whole great piece that I've cited numerous times on cooperation and how, you know, years ago they took out the word zealous out of zealous advocacy, right? and rule one, of the federal civil procedure. Why? Absolutely. Right. Because zealous advocacy is not the adjective that we need to be putting, not in this day and age. The Sedona conference talks about it's too late for gamesmanship, right? And hiding the ball in discovery. And that was 2010 when they wrote the the cooperation proclamation, right? So let's talk about words, Madeline, right? If you look at the word, I'm going to self-promote, Jared, I'm going to apologize. I wrote a great piece once, right? I did. All right. there there was my self-promotion jerry um and i called it uh, on on collaboration for lawyers why it's not what you think and i dug into words and if you look up in the dictionary like a real dictionary remember the ones with like pages and everything right not just online but if you look up cooperation it says it's an act or instance of working or acting together for a common purpose or benefit right and then if you take a look at, at its you know, entomology, right? you know that you look at the origin of that word, it comes from Latin, right? And I can't pronounce it in Latin, so I won't even try. i'll sound I'll, I'll sound terrible doing it. But it says in Latin, it says basically it's to work with or combine, right? So when you put it together, the word really means working together for a common benefit, right It's like brain science here, right, that we're trying to do here with lawyers. Like, why is it that we are so opposed as lawyers? To cooperate? Why is it looked upon as being a pejorative? Madeline, I'll start with you.
2: I think there are a couple of reasons. I think one is, at least in terms of litigation, we see ourselves in the adversarial arena. You know, right out of the starting gate, we're adversaries, we're on opposing sides. And in so many cases, that's in fact not true. We're both trying to get to the same goal, which is a efficient and a good resolution for our client. And so I think if you put yourself in that frame of mind and you remind yourself that we're not just lawyers, but we're counselors and we're advisors, I think that will inform the way that you go forward. I also think as the non-techie here, but the one with the performance background, one of the things they teach you when, when you're a performer, my I'll self-promote now. I sing opera in my spare time, of which there is little. One of the things they teach you about good acting is that you need to be vulnerable, right? And I think that as lawyers, we oftentimes think that we need to know everything or we need to look like we know everything. And so we forget that it's okay to ask questions it's okay to understand that we're all on a continuous learning journey, right? 1.1 of the Michigan Rules of Professional Conduct and the ABA Rules of Professional Conduct contemplate and require us that this is, you know, you don't just get out of law school, pass the bar, and you have all the information you'll ever need in your legal career in your head. Everyone who's ever you know, started the day after the bar realizes that is far from true, right? It's like you're continuing to learn and evolve as a human and certainly as a lawyer as you go on. And one of the things that those rules now tell us is that it's not just learning about updates in case law, but you need to also immerse yourself in updates in technology, and so what that doesn't mean you have to go to Legal Week. Although I, we all I think here had a great time. It was fabulous. Highly recommend. But it could be as simple as going to your local, you know, federal bar association lunch and learn, talking about updates in e discovery. It can be attending webinars put on by law firms or by government organizations about the use of AI in litigation. But understanding and being vulnerable enough with yourself to say, I don't get this, I don't understand it, and I want to learn more, I think is going to help people to embrace this new technology and not come out of the gate as very defensive because, as Scott says, they don't know enough to have a defensible position.
3: Yeah, Daniel, I mean, I think it's a whole other podcast, the psychology of the practice of law. But I do think... The way we choose our words and the way we develop our relationships with the other lawyers, whether they're on our side and co-counsel or uh, they're on the other side of the V, it matters. The way we, we choose our words and the letters and the way we write them, when we write opposing counsel matters. The people who write you super late at night because they're trying to get a reaction out of you. That matters, and that might make you angry. So it all matters, and I think the way we choose to talk with our opposing counsel uh, matters in terms of getting a resolution and getting to a good place on e-discovery, especially because again, there's going to be a wide swath of attorneys in terms of competence on this, their knowledge base on this. What you don't want to do is talk down to them, insult them, make them feel uncomfortable because they're going to retreat psychologically to a defensive position, and you're never going to get anywhere. So. Again, trying to strike a collaborative, cooperative tone understanding that most of these cases are going to settle and you're going to have to get there at some point, whether it's court-ordered mediation or you trying to just be a good person on the phone with opposing counsel, Um, you'd be surprised at how far that gets you. It matters. And so, again, the ultimate goal here is to be an advocate, not a zealous one necessarily, but an advocate for your client. And more often than not, again, there's a cost component and a sensitivity to the cost that is a disservice is being done to that by being a jerk or by being unnecessarily confrontational. Uh, You're just going to cause another motion to get filed that you're going to have to respond to. And who pays for that? The client.
1: I love this perspective. I just have to wonder, Scott, has this
3: always been your attitude or is
1: this, (laughs) you know, hard fought, you know, lessons learned over many years and many battles?
3: Definitely the latter. Uh, You know, in the beginning, you kind of mimic what you see in law school, which is very adversarial in nature, law school just in general, whether it's, you know, the classmates you're competing with, or if you went to a a law school where the Socratic method, you were kind of feuding with your professors, some of which were a lot harder on you than others. But yeah, it's definitely been an evolution, Jared. And what I've seen work and be effective and what I've seen not work and not be effective. And if I go back and look at the cases where I was trying to be an advocate for the sake of being an advocate, meaning I was just trying to argue about things because I thought that's what was in the best interest of my client, those cases took longer to resolve. They had unnecessary fights in them, um, which I'm sure we thought were necessary at the time. But with the benefit of hindsight, you start to see where you can cut costs and cut headaches and cut expenses by just being cooperative and again that might not be your client's goal in that particular piece of litigation depending on what's going on but more often than not it is and and over time i've found that the most effective way to reduce e-discovery spend in existing litigation is cooperation and i've seen it time and time again and so Yes, I'm a very staunch advocate of that now. It wasn't always in the beginning, but I've learned over the years that that tends to be what gets my client the best result.
0: Madeline, you were talking before about being a performer. And about how they teach you in acting, et cetera, about the vulnerability. And I was thinking about this in this spirit of transparency and cooperation and reducing costs by understanding the technology, et cetera. You know, Brene Brown was famous for saying, or is famous for saying, the vulnerability is the birthplace of innovation, creativity, and change. And I'm thinking about the change part. And I think something that we all learned, and I hope all of the listeners learned listening to the podcast here today change is okay, right? Mm-hmm. Just like, vulnerability is okay. And if we empower ourselves through knowledge, if we choose accountability and we strive for creating exceptional experiences every day and we put our clients first, then we'll adhere to those ethical responsibilities that we've got under the rules of professional responsibility. And we can adhere to federal rules of procedure one that says we should have a just, speedy, inexpensive approach to all of our matters. So thank you both very much for teaching that to all of us and to all of the listeners out there.
2: Thank you very much for having us.
0: Thank you. All right. And I didn't even ask you to sing, Madeline. So, all right. Uh, Next time. Next
2: time. Next time.
0: Next time. Next time. Thank you both very, very much. This is very, very enjoyable. Jared, anything else from you? This was a ton of fun and very insightful.
1: Madeline Lane, Scott Carvo, thanks a lot for coming on.
2: Thanks for having me. Thank
1: you both.
0: Thanks for joining us on BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast. If you're enjoying
1: these podcasts, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe for more episodes.
0: Head over to BDO.com for a list of all our episodes, transcripts, resources cited, and links on how to get in touch with us and continue the conversation.
1: Until next time, this has been another episode of BDO's Legal Tech Talk.